Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome, everyone, to the Rants About Humanity podcast. I have the honor to have my first guest ever on the podcast again. So you must be doing something right, bro. It's Kari Oliver, helping people take responsibility, masculinity coach, also helping people with Facebook ads. And he's now in dad life. How's that dad life, man? I'm curious. <laughs> when I had you on the podcast, you were like anticipating to become a dad. Yeah. What were some of the positive effects you didn't expect and what's were some of the negative things that you didn't expect yeah you know I, I tried to keep myself out of expecting something specific when i talk to guys I, i've interviewed a lot of people and so i've interviewed a lot of people about parenting as well especially dads and one of the big things i realized was like you can't anticipate what happens you can't anticipate the feeling that happens you can't anticipate what you're going to think about like i've been like having a cough the last two days so I've had to sleep in one of our guest rooms. Don't want to get the baby sick. And I was like, I would wake up and I would jolt myself awake a few times every night in the guest room. I'm like, why is this happening? And I started to realize as soon as I saw the baby, like I would walk into our room, the fact that I can't hold her, the fact that I can't like give her a kiss on the cheek, it was, it was like a weird, I hate this feeling. It was like a gut-wrenching thing that I didn't expect. It was like, you know. I love my baby, but she's brand new. She hasn't been here very long. So to me, I didn't notice how much of an attachment I'd have to her. And then, I mean, the first time I saw her completely broke down crying and it's not even a feeling you can explain. And I was talking to one of my mentors about it. He was like, this is one of the few feelings in the world that if nobody, if a person hasn't felt it, you can't explain it to them. But anybody who's felt it really understands what it feels like. Like you, it's something you'll never forget. And it's also not an ugly baby, bro. <laughs> no, she's cute as hell. <laughs> I mean, let's be real, man. I mean, everybody finds their own babies pretty, but there's a scale of prettiness with babies, man. One million. Do we talk about this more than we probably should? I was like, <laughs> how much more annoying would her crying be if she wasn't cute? Or like when she's got a day where she's got a lot of diapers she's going through. I'm like, what if we had an ugly baby? I would probably get annoyed a lot faster if she wasn't so cute and like, smiling at you while you're changing her diaper like this is an ugly baby i'd be like all right chill out on the pee and poop diapers bro like i think her being cute gives her way more credit for literally everything she does but i had discussions with some people and they have like yeah we can't raise children in this world and overpopulation but then i had a discussion with Mm. them and i'm not a dad myself but there's only so many things you see about yourself through your own lens. And then you can go nice. deeper in intimate friendships, but then you can go even deeper in intimate romantic relationships. But then you go super deep, I think, when you have children and you see all those patterns reflected of you towards them, your patterns towards you, you see even more stuff reflected. So there's some part about the psyche and about knowing yourself that you just, A, can't know by yourself, B, can't know with a partner, and then a child, yep. whoa, that's... That's even more. Well, I think that's what scares people is you see what you didn't do. You're, you're like, your child's going to reflect to you what you haven't done yet and, and what you've neglected or what, you, what you've been missing. And I think th- that reflection is something not many people are, are ready to see for themselves. I don't know what it is about the darkness 
that people are not willing to face. But if you learn to shed light on the darkness, that's one of the biggest gifts you can have because then you mm -hmm. can illuminate everything. But there's almost something that people are not willing to see uncomfortable aspects of themselves or dark aspects of themselves. And I know it's a bit scary, but once I know how to wrestle with that, that's where a lot of growth lies and change potential change lies. But it seems yeah. a lot of people don't even want to start that quest. Well, you think about people who like start who don't want to get out of a bad relationship or who don't want to start, you know, a long adventure or a new job or a new anything. Sometimes the comfort of something bad actually feels less painful than the allure of something new or the the work it's going to take to actually get that new thing. And I think that's really what keeps us stagnant. And it also keeps us like we talked about before. It keeps you pretending that you like where you're at right now. I get guys all the time. I get guys, you've seen it on my statuses, who when I'll say, hey, this type of guy, I can tell you he's not happy. You see all of them in my comments. Well, I'm happy. Well, my life's great. Well, look at this bank account. Well, look at this thing. And then inevitably, a few weeks later, I get a message. Hey, man, you know, when you post that status, I was a little bit annoyed that you were kind of calling out something and I felt like you were calling me out. So I commented, but here's what's really going on. And they're failing their relationships and they're failing at parenting and they're failing in their business. But everybody feels like they have to pretend publicly like they've got everything together. I get messages all the time from people who rant and rave on my statuses about how amazing their life is, or they'll go post their own statuses about how amazing their life is. Then I get the message later saying, hey, everything's falling apart, or this piece of my life is falling apart, and I'm not sure what to do about it. I'm going to go even deeper with that. You know, that it is such uncomfortable for us to admit that there's something wrong. This mm -hmm. even happens when you coach people. They hire you because they need help with something. And even in the coaching, they're afraid to tell you that there's something wrong. Well, yeah. that's actually why they hired you. I don't know if you resonate, but... Yeah. So I, I try to preface with that. I say, hey, look, I can only help you dig as deep as you'll allow me to go. And the depth at which I'm allowed to go is the, is the openness you're willing to have with me. Yeah. The things that you can't tell me. Now, certain things I'll be able to figure out. There are certain things I'll be like, hey, man, is this going on? Hey, man, is this happening? But there's always going to be pieces that I'm totally unaware of. And unless you're willing to share them with me, I'll explain you're wasting your money. You've already paid me. Uh, my, your yeah. money's in my account and you're not getting it back. You've already paid me. We might as well do this thing that we came here to do. But the tiptoeing around it isn't helping you and it's not helping me. My time's already paid for. So I can sit here and listen to your bullshit story about yourself, or I can sit here and actually help you with the real version of it. And you get to choose which one that is. Yeah. And also you're not like a prostitute, just pay them to give them a good time. Sometimes a bad time or uncomfortable things is the good time. That's the good time. I'm not here to be your friend. I am your friend by not being your friend. I'm here to, to advocate for change. I'm here as a mm -hmm. mirror to have honest conversation with yourself. And I feel I'm more of a blunt roots bear, sayer, but not blunt to be blunt, not to attack, but to illuminate. Yeah. But that's what some coaches feel I become. They, they, they don't want to be disliked and they become too much of a friend of their client. Yeah. And that's the thing is the friendship allows you the, the hard truth, the tough love. Mm -hmm. So in my first few sessions, I'm usually not pushing back too much. My first few sessions with my clients, I'm usually listening and I'm, I'm gathering information and I'm figuring out the, that time when you told me this story, when I see your face change, when I hear your tone change, I know there's something there that I can dig into later. 
So I make a little note about it, but I keep, I let you keep going with your story. Then once we start building rapport, once I know you start to trust me, that's when I can start sprinkling in the truth. Hey man, remember when you talked about this, you said that was how it made you feel, or you said that's what happened, but I don't buy it. I want to know something a little bit deeper. I want to know what you actually meant there that maybe you weren't comfortable telling me at the time. And we can go back and we can start pulling from the things that they told me before. Now that I have their trust, respect, and they feel safe inside of this container that we've created. You have a white bomb, right? Yeah, I do. Which most people don't know. Some people with mixed parents, they sometimes feel they don't belong and they have to struggle for their identity. Did you have yeah. the same thing? Oh yeah, all growing up. I grew up around poor white people. <laughs> so I they're even worse than poor black. <laughs> <laughs> well, I that was one of the things I realized that it was the same, but because we didn't look the same, there was a separation. I didn't look like the kids around me. And then when I was in like fourth grade, they opened up a bunch of government housing near my house and near my school. And so it was the first time I had like a lot of kids who looked like me. But I realized they didn't act like me. And so I was in a weird position where it's like, okay, the kids I'm used to being around, I don't look like them. Their parents don't look like me. Nobody around me looks like me, my teachers. And then I'm around a bunch of kids who do look like me, but I don't act like that. I don't talk back to the teacher like that. I don't, you know, cuss and go crazy, do the stuff that they do. And so I felt myself definitely in a weird spot, but I realized luckily pretty early. I get to figure me out before everybody else. Everybody else gets to attach themselves to a group. I'm the white kid, so I act like the white kids. I'm the black kid, so I act like the black kids. I'm the this, so I act like this. And they start identifying with group think, group identity very, very quickly, yeah, yeah, yeah. where I didn't even have access to it. I didn't have a group that mm. I could attach myself to. So there was a forcible exit into, okay, let me figure out my own identity and now I can float around to these different groups without feeling like I have to think everything they think or do everything they That's do. That's interesting. I see often three kinds of people. You have the people who try to fit in. You have the people who are the silent observers, or you have the people who are the class clown. Which one mm -hmm. of these three were you, were you mostly then? I was mostly a class clown in, mm -hmm. in like an elementary, middle school, up to probably the first year or two of high school. I was more the class clown because I was looking for acceptance. I was looking for somebody let me, you know, let me feel accepted into your group. Because even though I have friends, that was the hard thing, I think, was knowing that I was different, but I was never the lonely person. I always had friends. I always had friend groups, but I never felt really part of the group. I felt like I was this person corresponding with this group. An outsider looking in, group. right? I don't yes. know if you resonate with this. I had the same thing that I noticed these social norms and I could play them, but I never wanted to fully conform to them because they just felt that I was betraying a part of myself and my unique essence. Yeah. Again, it was a, it was an interesting time because again, I wasn't also, I wasn't one of the weird kids either that nobody wanted to hang out with. I was inside the group, but I didn't feel a part of it. And I, I used to hate that. I used to really not like that feeling. And then I would say probably about my third year of high school, second to third year of high school, I started becoming fine with it. And I started saying, okay, this is something that's going to differentiate me. I might as well make it a positive thing. I might, I might as well make it something that, that works in my favor. Did you learn the art of being likable or developing a first good impression? Because I saw some things that you go to a workshop and you sit in the corner and people come to you. So there must be something that you learned about 
being likable or having a good first impression? I would definitely say first impression. I think I learned that growing up around white people. I knew that when somebody looked at me, there was automatically a negative belief or there was a negative scenario that they are pulling from their past that they're attaching to me. Hey, somebody who looks like him did this to me. Somebody who looked like them did this, even if it wasn't in their own life. It was in a movie. It was in a story they heard. It was something that they, that they saw or heard that said, hey, somebody who looks like that acts like this, talks like this, does this. And so I realized definitely that I could use that belief to my advantage. I can allow you to make assumptions. So like when I would go in for a speaking gig, I would go in when it was somebody else's turn to speak and I would just go sit in the back and I would sit with my arms crossed and I would not talk to anybody and I would let people make assumptions. And then as soon as they said, hey, by the way, we got so-and-so in the room because I always knew the person who was speaking, you know, they, we've got Kyrie Oliver in the room. He's done this, 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 and this. And I put on a big smile and I start waving at everybody. And everybody's like, this is the dude who was quiet in the back. What happened? Automatically, my stock in that room jumps probably even ahead of the person putting on the event. So I realized I got to use other people's credibility to my favor. I got to network behind the scenes. And then once the event started or once the speaking engagement started, I got to borrow the credibility of whoever they trusted. And because of that, mixed with the fact that I was a quiet guy in the back of the room, it immediately shot me to the top of the room as far as my perceived value. It's also not what you expect because when you look at you physically, you've also been a football player. Yeah, yeah. American and football. I don't know, how, how tall are you in foot? Six foot six. <laughs> so that's yeah, <laughs> not pretty intimidating, right? Yeah. You could have easily used that strength to then make that first impression and make that part about strength and imposing yourself. Why didn't you do that? I, so I got into such a high level in football by doing that. I was used to imposing mm -hmm. myself. And then inevitably life comes and smacks you in the face. I had a few injuries. I had a, a bunch of stuff happen. I went through like some physical abuse when I was playing football. I got knocked on my ass where it was like, okay, now I just can't push my way through everything anymore. How do I figure out how to tactfully navigate the world? How to tactfully navigate my network, navigate my business, navigate my life? And so I think I started falling in love with knowing how to do something without pushing my way through it. How do I think my way through it? How do I maneuver my way through it and not just try to bulldoze everything because it had worked so well for me in the past? How was that stage when you, because of injuries, had to quit the thing that you attached so much value on? Well, I had to relearn my identity. It, it had been for a long time, Kyrie Oliver, the football player. And now that that's stripped away, now who am I? Now, what am I? Now, what do I have attached to my name, attached to myself when I don't have the thing that I had for so long and the thing that I thought was just going to be my future? I thought it, it was everybody was telling me that I was going to the NFL. I was going to be a professional football player. I was right height. I was right build. I was right speed, strength, everything. This is what you're going to be. Congratulations. You fucking made it. And then all of a sudden, oh, you're not that anymore. Good luck finding something else. What's the first thing that you did then besides mourning for that potential you supposed to have chased or achieved? Was it yeah. going for the girls, going for the business books, crushing any other aspects and putting your power and willpower in it? I was trying to figure me out. I was really, I was really I'd stuck on the identity. I was trying to figure out the identity. 
And so I was working a full-time job. I worked in special education. I was living in my, it was my ex-girlfriend's dad's old duck hunting trailer. Couldn't even stand up straight in it. Couldn't shower in it. I used to have to shower at the gym because it wasn't tall enough for me to be in there. I think that was my rebuilding time. That was me saying, okay, I'm going to figure me out. So that's when I started reading more like personal development type books. I've actually never read a business book in my life. <laughs> people talk about, I forget, the Russell Brunson, any of like secrets, the... Dot com secrets. And dot com secrets, whatever secrets, hacking, yeah. whatever. I've never read a business book in my life and I have a more successful business now, multiple businesses than most people I know. And I realized that it was my tripling down on my identity and using the, my strengths to my advantage that's gotten that. It wasn't in a book. It wasn't in a podcast. It was me doing hundreds of hours of introspection throughout the course of probably about two years. I used to stare at myself in the mirror and just tackle whatever came up, all the insecurities, all the biases, all the things I didn't like about myself. And then at the same time, I was interviewing people. So I've interviewed, it's over a thousand people at this point. And most of them were probably when I was 19 to about 22, 23 years old. I was just constantly interviewing people. I was trying to figure out patterns. I was trying to figure out what overall makes people successful, what makes people fail, what are people going to regret at the end of their lives. So I did a lot of end of life interviews. I was interviewing mm. people with terminal illnesses who were going to be dead within the next like six to nine months. And I did wow. 65 of those in total. And so I just wanted to get a good grasp on like, what am I going to give a fuck about from now on? What am I going to care about at the end of my life? And how do I take those things and make sure I have them when I get there? What lessons did those people say mostly? What were the patterns there? What people talked about? It was definitely a lot more about the people around them than the success they had. I, I remember interviewing one guy. I think over the course of his life, he had made over $400 million. He used to sell bridges to cities. He sold like big, gigantic bridges, and he would fabricate them, he would build them, and he would ship them over to wherever they were going to go. And he had like four or five other businesses that he had held. And he had had four sons. And I asked him what his biggest regret was. Or I said, if you could go back and change one thing, what, could you, what would you change? And he said, can I have four things? And I was like, okay, this is an old guy. I'm not going to argue with him. Yes, you can have four things. He says, I would have shown up to at least one of each of my son's baseball practices. Because I think that would have made all the difference. Bro, this resonates so much with someone who I interviewed and you know, I had to talk to uh, on Messenger. And he was like, yeah, man, I'm getting to X in uh, income, you know, and doing it because I come from a poor family, you know, and I get it. You want to you be financially comfortable. But I said, yep. in the end, it's not about financial success. It's about fulfillment. And in the end of your life, your children won't say, I wish my dad worked more and made more money. That's not yes. what they said. I wish my dad was there, supported me, make me believe in myself, you know, spend time with him. And of mm -hmm. course, you want to be financially comfortable. But when that becomes an end in itself, like nobody said at the end of their life, I wish my dad had, had worked more and no. spent more time in the office to make more money. No, but until you have money, you can't really know what that means. Mm -hmm. Like you have but to people have... keep moving the goalpost, I feel yes, sometimes. Four figures, five problem. figures, six figures, seven figures. And you keep on like when when and finally will the fulfillment be there to then reassess your whole mm -hmm. mindset towards this? Yeah. And that's why you you can't pick a goalpost that's always moving that's around something material. Now you can pick a goalpost that's always moving as as it relates to yourself. Who do I want to become? Because I have my guys do that. Our benchmark is always 10 years out or 20 years out at all times, it's 10 or 20 years out so that when you get there, you're still working. 
You don't hit a goal and say, okay, what's next? Because I realized that with financial goals, it was, I want to hit this a month. Now I want to hit this a month. And every time it becomes more and more empty and you wonder why. And you say, okay, that next level is going to be it. That next level is going to be it. But that's the thing is until you hit a baseline of like success in your life and in your business, you can't know that money is not the answer. Until you have money, you can't know that that's not going to do it for you. So up to a certain point, money is going to be the only thing you can think about because you have bills to pay or you have children to raise or you have a family to take care of. So I can understand money super important up to a certain point, And then we have to set our sights on something else. Yeah. I'm not going to deny that money is not important. Money is the way how we can make impact. But I think it resonates with what you said before. In the end, it becomes about self-awareness. Like what makes you feel fulfilled? You want to achieve what? So you can't, so you can't, so you can't. And some of these, so you can, you can also give to yourself right now or find other ways than making money. And then at a certain point in life, you focus so much on yourself that then there's more power to be gained from making an impact on other people in their life, your family, your, your son's daughters or people around, which is sometimes strange to explain to people, but yeah. then it becomes about satisfaction and fulfillment. My definition of scaling is simple. Doing more of what you love to do and less of what you don't like to do. And Absolutely. if you want to do stuff, do stuff that brings in the money or return on investment, do the stuff that are your natural strengths and do the stuff you love to learn. Mm-hmm. And all the rest, outsource it to people who are more qualified to do it, man. So you can focus on your zone of genius. Way easy. And Way the self-awareness easy. of knowing yourself, like what am I meant to do here? Who am I meant to serve? What are my strengths? And, and when you finally, I mean, I'm a, I'm a more direct, practicable, practical, no fluff, straight to the point person. But I know some people need me. I started to judge myself so much like, oh my God, I have no feelings. I'm too harsh, etc. But once I started embracing my gifts and I know that the intention is right, I started like doubling down on what I'm really good at and stuff that yeah. I'm not good at. I hire other people or I don't make false promises. Delegate. Yep. And that is so liberating to choose you, recognize your strengths, know yourself and find other people who can help you, but don't expect everything from you and that you're good at everything. It's exhausting and you can't scale it. Yeah. It's- no, I believe that it's something, again, it's something you have to have enough perspective. You have enough, have enough space to recognize that. And I don't think most people, ever give themselves enough space. I don't think anybody ever can back up from their problems and say, okay, can I look at this differently enough to get that revelation? Did you take time off to a special place? Sometimes to have a new perspective, I say change perspective, like little physical perspective in a cabin next to a lake, next to a forest, or just traveling. Do you also use these rites of passage in different environments to then develop new thoughts? Yeah. So I, I use two things. I go up in the mountains or in the woods and I take mushrooms and <laughs> the best things for shifting perspective, for gaining insight, for gaining introspection. I realize people do like psychedelic, especially uh, things for, for two reasons. They're either looking for something or they're running away from something. Mm. And the people who are looking for something, find it. The people who are running away from something, find it. And so making sure that you're looking for something and you're not running away when you do something like that, I think is of the utmost importance. I wouldn't even say looking, I would say discovering because discovering is like you're open. I mean, I'm just discovering and sometimes there's unexpected things, but that's just the interesting thing. When you have something, maybe you want to discover, but then you get a unique solution. It's also often 
I don't know how spiritual you are, but sometimes when you have a big intent towards looking at something, but you don't expect a specific strategy or how it has to be done specifically, then something appears. Yeah. Yeah. I think focusing more on here's the intention itself and, and being more relaxed with the path to get it, I think is how we find the ways to get it. Because you've seen it with success. You've been seeing it with interviewing people too, like successful people. There's not just one path. There's pro- there's hundreds. There's probably thousands of paths. We have to say, okay, which one's right for me based on my strengths? This is what annoys me often. People prescribe their personal solution as a solution for everyone. Everybody everyone else. should visualize. Everybody should plan their crushing it's day. Hilarious. Everybody should be flow and just play and dance. Like everybody, yes, but you're kind of the type who's more prone to do that. So I get it, but some people are a bit different and I see it all the time, you know? But that's the thing is like, because I, I hang out with a lot of spiritual people. I have them as clients for my marketing business. And I just start thinking, I'm like, if my client, who's like a high level CEO, does $20, 30000000 million a year, if he heard some of this stuff about just manifest it, just vision board, just you know, do your mantras and do your you know, meditations, whatever, he would laugh his ass off and he would get nothing done. And his business would crumble and his whole entire life would fall apart. But that's what people do. People buy into one ideology yeah. and they say, this is what I'm going to do forever. I know a guy, it's super weird. He kept trying to mentor me. He's an older guy. <laughs> kept trying to mentor me, kept trying to mentor me, kept trying to show me how much money was in his bank account. And I kept telling him, I, I promise you, it doesn't matter. I promise you, I don't care. You tell me you built all these businesses. I believe you. You don't have to prove it to me. And he kept wanting to show me screenshots of his bank account. And I just kept, no, thank you. And I said, I think you're looking for something that you need to go find. And I'm not going to be your guinea pig to try to He's find looking it. for approval of daddy. He wants to be that for somebody else because he didn't have kids. Yep. He probably never got his father's approval before he died. So I said, I'm just not going to be that person for you. I know you're looking for a young guy, successful, that can, you can kind of mentor. But I see what you're looking for. And I'm just not the person who's going to sit here and like have you test your theories on me. And so I said, I, I, I believe you have a lot of searching to do. And he comes back. He doesn't talk to me for like a year. And he comes back. All of a sudden, he's Buddhist. He has blown up both of his businesses. He's lost, I think it was like $700,000, $800,000 in uh, the crypto market. He had, ju- he had just basically blown his entire life up became a Buddhist monk and now lives in a tiny little apartment somewhere and is searching for happiness still. And I tell people a lot, like if you buy into the wrong ideology at the right time, you're, this is what happens. So. Way back in the past, I made a video where I make a distinction between escaping, fleeing. That's one. Two is the looking what you talked about. And three is, escape, uh, three is discovering. Mm-hmm. And what discovering has, it's like a court. You have a core. You have a court on a core. You can always be centered. You want to yes. discover something. If it doesn't give you what you want, it doesn't cast you away and you know you lost everything. But especially in a spiritual thing, when it becomes escaping or looking, they have no stable center and they, 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 they're just super flaky, airy, you know, and they have n- nothing yep. that grounds them. And when There's you look base. at psychedelics, looking, exploring, that's fine, but you need to have some sense of yourself, some kind of core that is stable. Else it's mm. complete chaos. And you easily get manipulated by all these things you think will finally solve it, but it will take you away more from going inside, seeing the center and seeing what truly gives you some stability within all the discovering. Yeah. 
Well, people are afraid of, of what they might find when they come to that center. People, I think people are very afraid of who they're going to find if they like really got to the core of themselves. What if it's not a good person? What if it's not who I thought I was? What if it's not whatever expectations I've had for myself? What if I'm not actually that? And I think that's what makes people create a barrier around that core and say, I'm not even going to look at it. So I'm going to build on all these things on top, all these extras, all these details that make me look like I'm the person I want to be. And I never actually get into who I actually am. Do you always, or do you have the intention to always change everything about you? Or do you sometimes say, Amanda, who is uh, your girlfriend, wife soon, I think. Yeah, um, fiance. Fiance. Do you tell her like, this is a negative part about me, or this will be difficult to change? That, or, or, or do you accept certain negative things about you and then don't put a lot of effort anymore in trying to change them? I think for certain time periods. Mm. I think there's there's pieces of me that that serve me well for certain time periods. It's not something that I'm tied to forever. There's times where I can be hyper focused on work and not super connected or not super outgoing and not wanting to go do all the things. Right before our baby got here, I put myself in work mode. It was like four days in a row, and I told her ahead of time, "Hey, I'm going to be head down mm-hmm. every once in a while. I like even just to myself." saying, what can you actually do right now? And so I went out and I accepted a bunch of phone calls. I said, I'm going to try to make as much money as I can in the next four days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'm going to just see how much money I can make. Because normally I keep my workday to about three or four hours and maybe a client call or two or somebody come over for dinner. But actual work, it's usually about three hours a day minus client calls. And I just said, what if I was really going back into like hustling like mm-hmm. I used to in my business? And I used to hustle and make $2,000 in a week. And that was incredible. Oh my God, that was amazing. And then I said, okay, what happened to the updated version of me? Now that my prices are higher, now that my skill set's higher, now that I have a bigger brand, what can I generate in four days now? And I went and did it. And I said, oh my fucking, yep, this is it. But I had warned her ahead of time, hey, this four days, not going to see much of me. I'm going to be in the office. I'm going to be taking calls. I'm going to be doing all my stuff. And then I get to switch back. I think most people don't know how to switch back. You know what's interesting about you? This is when you look at your wall, it's basically a dude posting some thought-provoking stuff, calling out some shit, and that's it. I don't see a lot of screenshots about I made X amount of dollars. My client made X amount of dollars. You don't see a lot about your offer. There is some Kyrie mystique there. So mm-hmm. for the people who are wondering, like, how the hell can this dude, how old are you? 26? 27. 27? How the hell can this dude work so little per week and make so much money? Is it just a matter of talking to your ideal person, pre-qualifying because you set standards, and then really just having the real sales conversations just in the inbox by when people mm-hmm. reach out to you? Well, so that's why I posted yesterday. I said, you know, do people actually see you as a leader or do they just like your stuff on Facebook? Because you can see there's a lot of people who get a lot of engagement on online. And you, if I was to look at the back end of their business, or if I was to look at their inbox, it's empty. And nobody really is coming to you for advice. Nobody's really asking you to help. Mm-hmm. And also not the people who can afford what you want to charge. I don't mm-hmm. charge. I'm not cheap to work with. Mm-hmm. I'm expensive to work with. And I still, I never have a lack of people coming to work with me. And it's because I think they can tell I'm an actual person. There's not the 
trying to look like I'm something I'm not. There's I'm not posting, like you said, screenshots, no bank statements. I see people doing that all the time. And I just realized for my for the type of guy I want to work with, that's not going to be the thing that gets him in. The thing that's going to get him in is me saying something that he's currently doing, him getting pissed off about it and thinking about it, or Kyrie's an asshole or Kyrie's mm-hmm. this or that. And then after a certain amount of time or after a conversation he has to have with his wife or after a conversation he has to have with his business partner or whoever, he comes to the realization that he's living out the thing that I just spoke about and that he's now seeing the consequences of that. And that's usually when they contact me and say, hey, man, you posted about this. And at first I got annoyed. At first, you know, I thought something negative about you. And now I'm starting to realize. And those are usually the guys who become my clients. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap with the clients that I have. I'll, I'll call them like rebels with a cause. If, if you're looking for a copy of a copy of a copy, that's not me. And I want to make you think. I want to dis- help you discover yourself. I teach you principles. If you just want templates, if you want to become a copy of a copy, yeah, if, if you want me, don't want me to help you think for yourself and know more about you and your business, you're not my kind of people. Maybe I'll be less successful between brackets, but I see so many people, they become a copy of a copy of a copy with the same banner and the same kind of stuff. And Bro, you're setting yourself up to lose, lose yourself completely. And you're competing basically on price because there is a gazillion copies of you. Yes. But that's why I set myself so high. I don't want to compete with price with anybody. You find it cheaper, go, go look, look somewhere else. <laughs> and I'm totally fine with it. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is the thing I really realized with my business and why I love that I have my marketing business. My marketing business makes me more money than I need. So when it comes to coaching, I can pick and choose. I can genuinely pick and choose because a lot of people will say that they'll pick and choose, but really the qualification process is, do you have enough money? And for me, it's different. Can I see you coming over to my house and having dinner? Can I trust you holding my baby? Can I trust you interacting with my fiance? Can I trust you around my other clients or my other students? Because a lot of the guys live uh, close to me. A lot of my guys live within 45 minutes to an hour from me. And can I trust you around my circle of people? And I don't think most people have that because coaching pays the bills. And so for them, they have to, most of them don't choose not to wonder. But I think at the back of their minds, a lot of them wonder, am I taking on this client because I need to pay my rent? Or am I taking on this client because I really believe I can help them? Isn't it? This is a question. This is an important topic because I get this a lot with people who are starting out and sometimes they take on their own clients or try to be clingy, desperate, needy. You can kind of compare it to a love relationship. Yeah. But isn't it natural that in the beginning you say yes and there's like, I mean, I get it now from where I am right now, but you need the money. The bills got to get paid. So then there's all that attachment energy there. But then mm-hmm. at a certain point, I witnessed that two, two years and a half ago that I said, like, I'm just sick and tired of accepting the wrong people. I love myself. I'm improving. I have a willingness to serve. I'm just sick and tired of beating myself down and doubting. And that's when I shifted for a year. And maybe it's a tip also for other people to choose self-love and try to maximize client fulfillment. Mm-hmm. I was not obsessed with getting new clients. I was obsessed with like, how can I attract the right people, choose self-love, and maximize the fulfillment of the people that I'm serving. Yeah. But again, you have to be able to, to afford that. Yeah. And so I do understand why people start with money. People start because I started that with my marketing business. I would take on the $500 project because I got to buy dog food. <laughs> I got to pay for my stuff. I got to pay for my life. I think up to a certain point, you have to be in a little bit of that scarcity and needy mode. 
But eventually, this is why I like having a business outside of coaching is I get to be scarce over there. I got to be going through me figuring stuff out over there, not with people's lives, because I'm not going to give good advice if I need it. I'm not going to give good advice if I need you as a client. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to make you feel good about yourself inside of our sessions. And you're going to look back after six months and have got nothing accomplished. And so for me, I knew that I wasn't willing to be that person. So I had to build a successful business so that I could have my coaching business and not have to wonder, did I take on this client for the right reason? And so now I'd say more to, I say no to more people than I say yes to. Even people who can afford working with me, they don't all qualify to work with me. Sometimes you have people who see the potential in people, but they fall in love with the potential and the person is not committed to change. But in mm-hmm. a way, they hire you to help you through the commitment and consistency. So how do you deal this, with this conundrum? I fire them quickly. Mm. I, I, if I bring on a client, and I, I actually just did it a few months ago. I brought a guy on. He said that I came, on, I came to him in an ayahuasca ceremony. He said he did ayahuasca, and he was like, you just kept popping up, and I know I need to work with you. And so I, I, I let him, and I, I rarely ever let people make payments. I usually make people pay for the coaching in full so that you respect the entire timeline. I said, you can make payments. Totally fine. Here you go. And within like four sessions, we did our last session and I could feel him not wanting to go to a certain place where I was trying to push him toward, where I was trying to get him to, to at least open up this door, let's call it, was totally unwilling. And I sent him a message and I said, hey, look, we need to talk about this. We need to have a conversation about it. I don't get a response for like two or three days. And then all of a sudden he messages me and says, Hey, my last check just got to your house, but I just canceled it. And I think we should talk. I was like, okay. And he was like, well, I just really want to you know, get clear on what our expectations are inside of these sessions. And I said, perfect. Me too. Inside the conversation, I ended up saying, I don't know if you're willing to switch to this. I don't know if you're willing to have this mindset around it. And I think even if we did continue, if the current mindset stays the same, I don't think we'll actually end up getting anywhere. And you'll end up paying me more and you'll end up doing more sessions, but you're not really going to grasp anything. And I said, I think you're looking for a consultant. I think you're looking for somebody to say, you ask me a question, I'm going to give you the direct answer. And then we move on to the next question. And I'm not that person. My job is to help you create your internal dialogue. My job is to help you create your internal filtration system for information and for your own thoughts and feelings. That doesn't happen in a session. That doesn't happen in two sessions. And so because I charged you this much and I let you break it up into payments, it allowed you to think that the work came in segments and it doesn't. And I said, I I just don't think this is the right thing for you. Have a great time. No hard feelings, but definitely not working with me anymore. Do you notice that fast wing, quick wins, magic pill mentality sometimes? Because I see posts that you make like, this dude came to me and he thought he just needed this. Three months later, he came Mm -hmm. back and I charged so much more (laughs) because I knew he needed this. Yep. So I actually delay it. A lot of people try to say like, get the gold nugget in the first, in the first session. I delay it at least three or four sessions for guys. Even if I know what it is in the first session, we'll be talking. I'm like, "Mm, that's something I could really hit on. I make them wait because I make you go through that moment of like, man, is this really the right guy to talk to? Is this really the right guy to learn from? And some of them will say it. Some of them won't. And I like when the guys will say it to me. Hey, man, you know, I'm just like, I- I'm not 
sure that I'm getting the value out of this. And I say, beautiful. Now let's have the conversation. Because then we get to say, you've already ridden the roller coaster. And if you're on your downswing of the roller coaster, when you're saying, I'm not too sure about this, and we can pick up from there and say, this is what you needed to get to, I think in order to get to where we want to go. When I tell them the answer to something, and they're like, why didn't you tell me that a month ago? I explain, you wouldn't have accepted the answer a month ago. I noticed this when I was coaching people with productivity and now helping them uh, close more clients. I don't I unroll more clients, close is like, if you yeah. want to close, get close. That's, that's more what I like. I noticed the pattern of the guys who came to me who needed help with productivity that they didn't have clarity because they didn't have a father figure. They had no discernment. They didn't know what they wanted to do. They wanted me to become their taxi driver. Not their yes. co-pilot for the goals to get to their destination. They didn't even know. It's like, dude, I'm not meant to be your taxi driver. Yeah, I can help you navigate. We can choose a direction. We can adapt. You're on the steering wheel. Mm -hmm. And that's what I feel a lot of times. And especially with men who don't have any discernment or clarity that they force this father figure role onto you. And I don't think that is, that is meant to be your role in a transformational process. I don't know if you also witnessed this with guys in your mentoring. Absolutely. Now, there's times where I'm supposed to be a father figure. Mm. There's times when I'm supposed to be a big brother. There's times when I'm supposed to be a friend. There's times when I'm supposed to be a mentor. And I get to fill those different hats based on what my client wants, not what I want. What does my client need right now? What role do I need to be for them right now? So sometimes it is the father role. It's, it cannot be all the time. It cannot be every single session. I'm telling you what to do when you come to me with this problem. Oftentimes, it's just talking through it together. And you come into your own solutions. This is probably one of the biggest realizations I've made is if I come to the conclusion for the client, they will not attach it to themselves. But if I ask them the right questions and let them come to their own conclusions, that's when they'll say, okay, this is now a part of my psyche. This Do you never have a father identity. figure talk down like, dude, a real man does this? Oh, at, all the time. All the time. Like for me, for instance, it's like, dude, and I say this to people, dude. It's okay to be a beginner, not to be an amateur. Mm -hmm. Like show up on time, keep your promises, have integrity. You don't have to be perfect. Real men, they communicate about what's going on. And I expect that from you. Yes. I will not tolerate any less and you shouldn't tolerate any less of me. And that's a bit of a talk down out of care because I know they can do it. But especially young men, they need to hear it sometimes. You need mm -hmm. to stick by your word. You need to keep up with your promises. It builds up self-esteem. And I feel a lot of times, I feel you're also that guy, you keep your promises, but I feel the integrity and keeping your promises, it's a lot less. It was an old school virtue from my grandma, you know, like be a man, keep your promises, you know, be yeah. on time, deliver. But now I feel maybe it's subjective. I feel that this is a much more loose value these days for people yeah. to respect. I do think things have changed though. I think there's time for fluidity. I think there's time for adaptability. But I think at a core level or your purveying quality still needs to be integrity, still needs to be sticking to your word, still needs to be doing what you know you're supposed to do. My only counterpoint to that would be <clears throat> learning how to leave something alone when it's no longer for you. When it because people would used to ride things until they died. They would ride the the I I kept my word. I'm gonna stay in this marriage, I'm gonna stay in this relationship, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna stay in this job because I said I was going to. That's the only part where I say too much integrity, too much stick to actually ends up being a hindrance to you. And we have to, again, help you develop your internal dialogue 
to know which is which. Yeah. And I work a lot with people with integrity, but it can become a curse because I noticed that the people with integrity have the most difficulty with seeing themselves as an expert or showing up, or they see things as yeah. bragging instead of showing that ideal client what's possible. I think integrity also for people, it becomes, I work with a lot of guys who think that they're like rebel entrepreneurs and they're like the rebel without a cause. And I say, that's not, I don't think that the men who are comfortable with themselves identify as that. So it's okay for you to identify with that right now. But I don't think that the men who really respect themselves, who are really trying to become the best versions of themselves, still feel like they're the rebel. And so there's something that's told you that the rebel means I'm truthful. And because I'm truthful, people don't like me. Because I'm truthful, I don't get the results I want. And I say you're sacrificing happiness, livelihood, purpose for trying to be too truthful. They're and fighting against that. something and not yeah. for something. Yes. And you they keep on like looking to fight things aggressive. against something to push against, which takes a lot of energy. And they get that identity from the thing that yeah, you need against. friction. People, people feel like they need friction in order to be important. They feel it's like it's also they, the addiction to the struggle that I sometimes get. They're addicted to the struggle. Like mm -hmm. people think fear of failure is prevalent, bro. Fear of success is a lot more prevalent. Man. Oh, yeah. That's an identity change. If you Absolutely. see yourself as failure, like you just get confirmation of what you're already thinking. But fear of success, man, boo, it takes a lot of time to take that in, bro. Well, yeah, there's so many pieces of you that you have to divorce in order to get it. I think that's the thing that people are, are super scared of is what things that I currently am comfortable with, am I going to have to drop in order to get what I want? You know what I'm curious about? Your courting of Amanda story. Did you court her like she know he was into you and then you visited her and then you oh, like, didn't respond? Like, what did it look like? or how, how did it happen if you're willing to share? Yeah. So I took four flights out to go see her within two months. As soon as I knew this is what I want, okay, now it's happening. And I was out there every few weeks. So we're from the same Just hometown. in the vicinity by accident? So the first time actually was, what's funny was I pretended like I had client meetings. The first time I went out to Austin, Texas, I live in Arizona. I flew out to Austin, Texas for client meetings. And I said, hey, if you have time, I'd love to take you out to dinner. And we ended up hanging out the entire time. And I actually did have a client that I was seeing, but I wasn't there for four days just to meet with clients. I was there to see, hey, is this really something I want to pursue? Because we had met each other for the first time in December. We're from the same hometown. We went to the same high school, but we didn't know each oh, other whoa. in high school. Yeah. So she actually she graduated a year ahead of me with my brother. So we've known of each other. We have all the same friends. We just didn't know each other back then. But we had been following each other, I'd say since like 2014. We've been following each other online, seeing what each other's doing. And we met up for the first time in December 2019. And it was the first time, yeah, first time we met, hung out, went out to breakfast. And I started having that inkling of like, yeah, I think this is something I want to pursue. How do you know that? I'm curious. Like, what were the signals, patterns, something you noticed, some, some archetypes you filled in? Physical attractiveness came first, 1 million percent. Physical attraction came first. But I had also seen her. So we had actually been following each other for a while. I had seen her. I used to post a video every day on Facebook for like three minutes every evening. She used to post a video every morning when she would go to the gym. So I had been watching her and her personal development journey the last few years. I had been watching 
the way she thinks and the way she views herself and the the book she was reading, the podcast she was listening to, I was actively watching her becoming more of the right woman. And she had been watching the same. She had been watching me do the exact same. So I think when we met up, it was really just to validate what I had already thought about her. Is she really the person that I believe she might be? And in conversation, those first few weeks, the answer was yes. And so now it's something that I pursue. I actually ended up horrible, but hilarious. I ended up kicking a girl out of my house. When I, when I knew I wanted Amanda, there was a girl who was staying at my house. I faked sick for four days, acted like I was sick because I had already told her, hey, I think we're just better off as friends. And she just wouldn't hear it. Mm-hmm. And so we were going on a trip together. And I said, okay, I already know that I want this over here. The one that I'm on this trip with, to me, one woman gets my time, attention, effort, energy, physicality at a time. So -hmm. because I already knew that I wanted Amanda, this girl doesn't get any of it anymore. And she was made aware of it immediately and then couldn't hear it. She still wanted to go on the trip. She still wanted to do, you know, our trip for New Year's, all this other stuff. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to make her leave right now, but I got to fix it because I can't be sleeping with her and thinking about this other one. That's not going to work for me. And so did the four days, acted like I was sick the entire time, came back and we had another conversation, said, hey, again, I think that this is probably just good for us to be friends and I'd love to support you and I'd love to help you out and blah, 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 blah. But romantically, this isn't going to work. And I went off to Austin to go visit Amanda. This trick was still in Arizona. I said, if you're looking for a place, because she was thinking about moving to Arizona. Mm-hmm. So I said, hey, if you want to look for a place, you're welcome to stay at my house. You can figure out what you want to do, but let's figure something out. And so I went off. And within the first time going out to, to Austin, I was like, okay, this is definitely something I want to pursue. I had validated everything that I thought. She had been the person that I thought that she might have been. And I was 1 million percent sure. So I came back home, ended up sitting down with the girl for the last time and saying, Hey, look, you need to book a flight. (laughs) You got to (laughs) leave. You either got to find a place in Arizona within like the next few days, or I need you to book a flight back to where you came from. And she ended up booking a flight, of course, crime, blubbering, blah, blah, blah. But I, she actually was the one who ended up saying at the beginning, I don't think I'm able to be the type of woman that you deserve. And I said, I agree. But I said, I think a future version of you may be able to, but it's time to go do that. Mm. And if I'm still around and available when that happens, amazing. If I'm not, we've missed an opportunity, but life goes on basically. And she ended up leaving horrible time, blah, 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 calling me the next few weeks. I had to completely ignore her for like two weeks and then end up calling and saying, hey, look, this is where things are going. It wasn't going anywhere. You would have just drugged me into the same type of relationship I had with my ex, which I wasn't willing to do anymore. And I thought she understood at the time. She actually ended up messaging my my now fiance from like a fake Instagram profile at one point, trying to see if they overlapped. She was trying to see if I was sleeping with her and the other one at the same time. And luckily, thank God, I didn't. And so it came out that I didn't, but she tried to see if I did or see if I was doing something shady that I wasn't doing. And Amanda actually called me that morning 
Amanda was coming to Arizona. It was actually, it was fucked up. Hilarious though. She was coming to Arizona to surprise me for my birthday. And I get a call at seven o'clock in the morning saying, I just got the weirdest voice message on Instagram. And I said, oh, okay. And I could tell she was angry. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, what happened? And she sent me the voice messages. And it was that girl that I'd sent home saying uh, she had asked like date specific dates that I went out to Austin. She was asking for, and my fiance was like, I'm not giving you specific dates. It's weird. And the girl in a voice messaging her and, say, her and saying, well, I don't know if Kyrie told you about me, but I'm so-and-so. And I just never really got a clear answer from him as to why it didn't work out and why he made me leave. And I think it was because he was seeing both of us at the same time and blah, blah, blah. So I had this whole like Amanda asking, hey, do I need to turn around and go back home? Like, were you seeing both of us at the same time? And luckily, one of my students was living with me at the time. And so I got him on the phone with her. And I said, I haven't said anything to you yet. Amanda asked him the question. And she asked if the girl ever stayed in my room. Said, nope, I made the girl stay in a guest room. Did you know, we ever, were we showing like we were in a relationship throughout the house? He said, nope, she was, Kyrie wasn't. Like it got the confirmation that Amanda needed to say, mm-hmm. okay, there He's wasn't committed. an He's overlap. Committed, yeah. Yes, that I was committed. And then again, I fly out there four times within the next two months to go out there. So the pursuit, I made it super clear. Here's what I want. Here's what I'm willing to do to have it. She needed that last point of recognition that I had already cut off any other options. I had already cut off anything else, anybody else. Did you actually written down what kind of things you expect of a woman or what you're looking for? Six pages. I had six pages of exactly the type of woman that I wanted. And in a law of attraction way, how many things that Amanda actually resemble what you've been writing down and made manifest that way? She had all of my needs met <laughs> and a lot of the wants that I had. I have people write down two lists. Here are the things that you need. Here are your non-negotiables. And here are the things that are really, really nice accessories. Mm-hmm. They're nice interests for, I would love to her to be interested in this. I would love this hair color. I would love this you know, these extra things, but she had all of my wants and she had, or she had all of my needs and most of my wants. And so it was uncanny when I was talking to her at first, because I actually told her because we were friends, I told her to do this with her ex. I said, write out in pros and cons list, write out your ideal man and write out the version or the, the pieces that your ex has and the pieces that he doesn't have. And that's going to tell you whether you should continue the conversation or the continue the relationship with him. And that was like two years before we got together. I ended up giving her that exercise to do. And I said, here's what I did. And then when I broke up with my ex, I said, here's what I updated it. I said, okay, now here's more things that I'm looking to not have. Here's more things that I am looking to have. And I got to update my list of, of things. The next girl I talked to had some more than my ex did. Mm. But then I found Amanda who had damn near everything that I had written out. Yeah. What I think is one of the powerful things to do, and I gave it to my clients in the past with mindset is sentence completion. And you just write down the first thing that come up. I feel most happy when I feel most anxious when I feel most mm. excited when I feel most lonely when, and you just fill it in for yourself. And if you really have an intimate relationship with someone, they could maybe read like what I mostly expected from my dad was how Mm. I am like my dad is. And you just don't filter, don't center yourself. Write down the first thoughts that pops up in your head because that's the strongest one. 
And then mm-hmm. when someone gets to know you, that's a very intimate connection. But most people are not willing to share that self-awareness or have that talk, but it can be so powerful to understand someone better. Well, especially if you're looking for a long-term relationship, like you're not going to be able to hide this stuff forever. And hiding it right now just gives them a false expectation is going to make them feel betrayed later on. If you're not open and honest at the beginning, you're going to deal with it later on down the road when all of it's going to look like to your partner, it's going to look like you all of a sudden became this person when really it's the person you've been all along that you've been subverting or that you've been hiding from them. That's the one thing we have to talk about, Kyrie. You know what it is, right? No, I don't. It's the croc life. Gotta be the croc life. <laughs> I wish I had them on right now. Tell me why you like the crocs, bro. Like for me, like it, it just drops the testosterone by so many levels, man. You try to convince people into the croc life. Tell people why should they should switch over to the crocs, man. Because my testosterone is higher than everybody I know. That's why. But they can't drop your testosterone level. I got more of it than I need. I got testosterone to go around. Crocs is, is the ultimate symbol of I'm comfortable with myself. I'm comfortable with myself to the point where I'll wear these electric blue Crocs to Home Depot and not think twice. And they're not even matched in color? No, most of the time they are. <laughs> but the, the, the electric blue ones usually aren't. I have like black ones that I'll wear wherever. And I have slippers now. I got Croc slippers that are comfortable as fuck. I don't know what the fur is inside, but it's amazing. And then I have like the electric blue ones that are the, I have to be so extra comfortable with myself to wear this out in public. And I will. You you think everybody could uh, pull it off? The croc lifestyle? Eventually. Not right now. So there's people who would go outside and everybody's like, fuck's wrong with this dude. It makes you have to to graduate. You have to graduate into a level of self-acceptance and self-understanding and being comfortable with yourself to, to qualify for the croc life. One thing you're also a big fan of is dogs. And I also have a dog. What is something that dogs give you or contribute to your life? Oh my gosh. Dude, we've had a lot of stuff with dogs last year. Yeah, yeah no, I, I'm also curious if you're willing to share like this whole experience, how it's been for you, because I know dogs are important in your life. Yeah, we just picked my puppy up. I literally picked him up a half hour before I got on this call from the from the pet hospital. He was eating his, his potty pads and he had eaten some of them and swallowed them and they were like blocking up his intestines. Luckily, nothing wrong, no surgery, no nothing. He just passed them. But we've lost three dogs in the last year. And... I got my first dog. I I never grew up with him, but I got my first dog two months after I moved here to Arizona. I just started my business. I just started like doing all my own stuff. And it was actually because I wanted kids. I knew I wanted kids. I was single. I was in a new state. And I said, I was obsessed with becoming a great dad. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was thinking through what my dad wasn't. And I said, okay, I need to be an amazing father. I don't want to have kids with some random chick, so that's not going to work. What's something I can take care of that's difficult to take care of that's going to show me the tools that I need to be a great dad? And so I looked up most difficult dog breeds. Well, really? Yeah. It was between a German Shepherd, a Border Collie, and a Siberian Husky. And I love the look of a Siberian Husky. I was visiting my brother in Los Angeles at the time. And I would on my drive back home, I was calling around places. That was uh, Kai or? Yeah, that was Kai. Yeah. I was calling around places to see if I can get a husky puppy. 
found this lady who lived 20 minutes away from my place here in Arizona. And before I even went home, I went to the pet store. I went to go pick up the puppy and then I went home and he's been my guy ever since he was an asshole when he was a puppy. He was the most difficult thing in the world for like the first two years. And then he became the most amazing dog I've ever had. Super calm, super collected. I love that he was like, he would starve people of his attention because he's, he's pretty. He was mm -hmm. white and gray with bright blue eyes. Everybody wanted to pet him and he rarely let people pet him. He would just kind of give him a weird look and like walk away from him. When they try to call him over, Kai, come here. He'd give him the look and walk away. And I used to love it. And I was like, this is the guy who just, I, I joked that he was like an Instagram model. It's like, I want you to pay attention to me, but I want you to touch me. I want you to want my attention or I, sometimes even I want you to pet me. But then as soon as I know that you're really wanting to pet me, I'm going to just back away and I'm not going to Is there something, touch. sometimes I see it in my own dog, I have my own name Pumba. Is there something that your dog embodied that you wish you had? And it's like, you see it in them. So it cultivates something in you because I have my dog who's very playful and curious about people and energetic. And I have that part in me. And sometimes he reminds me of certain things I neglected mm. or I should take more into account. I think quiet confidence at, at first. It was something I was really looking for. How do I tone myself down? How do I grow up a little bit into a more calm, collected confidence? And that's, I feel like what he had, where it was, I don't need anybody specifically. I don't need other people. I don't need attention. I don't need the admiration, but it's nice to know that I can have it when I'm looking for it. I can have it when I want it. And I think at that point, that was important for me. I don't know. This may maybe a harsh statement, but I will probably suffer more from the loss of my dog than of somebody who's like close to me as a friend, because that that's you're, I'm the universe for this dog. There's like unconditional yeah. love, which is even stronger than when you have it with people. I've had both. I've had like friends close to me die and I've had my dogs, three of them now die and dogs are harder because like you said, you're, you're that thing's entire world. So the first dog that died, so I had a Cane Corso, it was an Italian Mastiff. He drowned in our pool. Last September, my fiance went outside to let the dogs back in, saw him at the bottom of the pool and screamed. And I was in our garage and I ran out back, jumped in our pool. I had to drag him up to the side of the pool. I was doing chest compressions on him. I was, I didn't know how long he had been there. So maybe he's still alive. And I saw just like blood and water kind of trickle out of his mouth. And I knew he was dead. And I mean, having to pick him up over my shoulder, walk him up to my truck. Like, I, I don't mean to be in super detail here, but it was yeah. like, it was a hands-on experience. I had to, he was 130 pounds too. So people can visualize this wasn't a small yeah. dog. He was a gigantic black, like beast of a dog, but the sweetest thing you could ever want. He would always try to climb up in your lap. We have a video of him the morning that he died, trying to climb up in my fiance's lap. My fiance is five, two and weighed five pounds more than the dog. And he was just trying to climb up on her lap when she was, when she was laying down. And I mean, just the biggest teddy bear of a dog until a stranger came, then his bark, I mean, his bark sounded like thunder. Oh, it was amazing. So to me, it was like this sweetest big teddy bear of a dog all of a sudden was gone out of our house. And we had three dogs at the time. And it was like such a big hole in the house. And then, I mean, I would wake up for probably about three weeks, almost every night, I would have a nightmare of having to jump in the pool and drag my dog up and try to revive him and couldn't. 
wrapping them up in a blanket, you know, trying to get her and the other dogs inside so they don't have to see it. It was a lot. And then we got another puppy who was his name was. So the first one's name was Baloo from the Jungle Book. The second one's name's Bagheera from the Jungle Book. And he, we got him right after we found out we were pregnant with my daughter. And so the whole time my fiance was pregnant, she also has his puppy in her lap that she gets to take care of, that she gets a mother, that she gets to nurture. So it was, he was definitely like her puppy. And I was, I was kind of chopped liver. I was, he didn't want anything to do with me most of the time. Mm-hmm. He was super cool. We'd play around, but he was a mommy's boy for sure. And like my Husky was, he was my guy. Mm-hmm. She would go up to bed. My Husky would not <laughs> follow her anywhere for a long time. When we would be out of town, my Husky wouldn't even let people feed him. He would bark at them until they left. If we had a friend come over and feed him, he would wait till they left to eat his food because it wasn't dad feeding him. So this other puppy was like, that was her baby. And he had a heart murmur that we knew about. He had a heart murmur. They said it was no big deal. And at nine months, he ended up having a heart attack. I, I heard him making weird noises in the middle of the night. We took him out of his kennel. I tried to get him to go to the bathroom. He wouldn't. I tried to get him to drink some water. He wouldn't. He started kind of foaming at the mouth a little bit. We put a towel under him. My fiance laid on the floor with him and he started kind of convulsing. He just randomly had a heart attack and there was literally nothing we could have done about it. She was like yelling to, to take him to the hospital. And I said, he's not going to make it. I could, like I could already tell it was probably 30 seconds away. And then we see like his last breath, like let some fluid out. And again, I got to wrap my dog up in a blanket and take him off to the hospital. And we actually have them or two of them down here. They have the, the ashes from Baloo and from Kai. And then the third one with Kai, he was, he'd been with me the longest. He was five and a half. We thought he had some super rare disease. And then turns out he had like a, a big malicious cancer on his spleen. And it was either going to be a super expensive surgery that they said he probably wouldn't survive or we got to put him down. So that one was like my first two dogs had died so violently. I mean, drowned and had a heart attack. And so this one, I said, I can't let him go out in pain. This has been, I mean, he's been with me through so much. I was like a single dog dad for so long. And then now with my fiance, now with the baby, he had already seen two of the other dogs, you know, pass away. I was like, he needs to be put down like calmly. And so we were sitting in the room. I mean, I was crying my eyes out, sitting in the room. He was laying in my lap. I got to pet him. I got to hang out with him. They came in and did the injections. He passed away in my lap. I was feeding him beef jerky beforehand. I almost didn't because I was like, that's not good for him. I was like, well, <laughs> he's not going to be here much longer. Yeah, might as well supper, give it man. to him. Yeah, yeah, might as well give it to him. One of my students actually got to, he not got to, he was in the room behind me. He was sitting behind me and, and got to watch. like got to watch my emotional process through this entire thing. And we had a good conversation about that afterwards of like him having it modeled for him because his dad didn't know how to. And he's like, I, there's the first time I ever got to see a man process and go through his emotions healthfully, not screaming and cussing at anybody, not trying to fight anybody, not going to drinking out a bunch of alcohol. Like here's how you do it the right way when things are fucked up. And I realized that that was one of the biggest lessons I got to even show him and, and show myself was you get to become the person that handles things like this well. 
and it sucks the scenario. I wish I didn't have to lose my dogs to, to know what that looked like. But now I get to show other people, this is how you process negative emotion. This is how you go through difficult things. And how did you go through the whole morning process then? Was it like, I just let come up, whatever come up. And I'm, if I want to think about them and just keep on repeating that idea, it's fine. Like how, how does this morning process that is a bit healthy and emotionally cleansing look like for you? Yeah. The first one was the hardest. The, the one who drowned because we'd never lost a dog before. So we were, we were messed up for probably about two weeks. I didn't take on any calls. I told all my clients, hey, I'll, I'm going to continue running your ads. I'm going to continue doing what we're doing. But like, I'm not even good to go on calls right now. We weren't eating very much. Our other two dogs were super depressed. That one was, I say, I'd say the most difficult. This last one, unfortunately, we were used to it. Like It was the third one. He actually died exactly a year Whoa. from when the first one died to the day. Really? To the day, September 20th. The first one drowned September 20th, 2020. This one died September 20th, 2021. I don't know how or why it happened. It was the exact same day, a year separated. Did you ever make a link somewhere to be between becoming a father or having a child? I mean, some people would go that length so to think about the that. first one, this one was kind of crazy. The first one, when he died, so we didn't even, we, we got pregnant the next weekend. The, after the first one died, first one died. And probably the night before my fiance got pregnant, I had a dream and it was that dog and standing next to God and nothing was said, but something said that that dog had sacrificed itself for one of my future kids, like in exchange for either my future kid dying or something going wrong with my future child. That dog was willing to give himself. So he up. has a good guardian angel or guardian yes. dog. Yeah. And the fucking next night is when we got pregnant. And I had actually told my fiance, I woke up at like 3 a.m. and I told her about the dream. And the next night we were having, uh, we had some friends in town. We were having a housewarming party. And hey, quickie upstairs before we go downstairs and, and hang out with everybody. And that was the night that we conceived my daughter. Literally, 15 hours after me having that dream. And then, and then it's a whole next month until we actually find out that we're pregnant. And so we didn't actually know or make the connection. I think my fiance's parents, I think my fiance's mom was the one who made the connection that because I told them about the dream too. And they're like, you realize that was the day before the baby <laughs> was made. And so I don't know if that was a connection, but I, you know, some of these things maybe it feels better to say that there is a connection whether there is or not doesn't really matter but i don't know the connection of the two dogs dying on the same day but that one dying the night before we conceived the baby i think has something there to end at a, at a lighter note at the end of the podcast and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for you being <laughs> honest and sharing this about it yeah how the hell are you able to survive that delicious fucking fatty foods that you eat with portions that are just like, you know, Greek God size? I sometimes see these portions pass by in Arizona. How are oh, you able? I mean, you love food, but how are you able to, to manage all this gorging, <laughs> I mean, glorious big, food, but unhealthy food? Yeah. I'm a big guy. So I think I just have more capacity for it, I would say. And I need to be more balanced with it. I think a lot of it now is like, okay, now we offset it with gym time. You offset it with time outside. You offset it with 
time in the sauna or in the pool or taking the dogs to the park. I think it's really, and again, I need to do a better job of it, of offsetting and saying, okay, here's the way to, to best balance it. But there's definitely a lot of it here. If people want to check out more about everything that you do, follow you, get some mentorship, where can they follow you and get some more Kyrie love and guidance? Yeah. Facebook is where I post most often. I post usually two, three times a day. Facebook, I think it's... If you look up my name, we'll be mutual friends with with Phil. Kyrie Oliver. And then on Instagram, it's just at Kyrie. K-Y-R-E-E on Instagram. Let's end up with a fun question. Look behind you and tell me a story about something that is behind you. Well, I just told you a long story about my dogs. Actually, good one. So I have a thing here. It's a little baby carrying a basketball with a broken basketball rim. And I have another one over here doing a slam dunk. That's Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. Grew up with them. Heroes. That's That was my childhood. I was watching Shaq and Scotty Kobe. Scotty Pippen was a small one. He was still be able to, <laughs> to get selected. Yeah, Played for the Lakers. And actually just our new puppy. His name's Kobe. And mm-hmm. we're getting a puppy in January named Shaq. And so we're going to have Shaq and Kobe in the house. And do you have any story about any tattoo that you have? Were it completely impulsive tattoos that you got? Or is there like a specific story about it? Or you say like, fuck it, let's get one. Each one has meaning. I don't have any impulsive tattoos. I told myself at, at the beginning that I wasn't going to get any tattoos just because it looked cool. I have on my forearm here, I've got Atlas. The, yeah, you also see it on the left. You also have Atlas there. So I was wondering Heine? about it. Yeah, oh, there. yeah. This is a, a whiskey decanter mm-hmm. that I got with Atlas on it. So I have Atlas and then I have Zeus on the back end of my arm. And this is the, the Parthenon. But I have Atlas and Zeus. And the whole story was that the Titans try to take over the gods in, in ancient Rome. Greece. Um, Greece. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they tried to overpower the gods. And his punishment, when they were eventually defeated, was that he had to carry the universe. And I know a lot of people, I know a few people who have Atlas tattooed on them. And the story behind it is, well, I have to carry the weight of the mm-hmm. world on my shoulders. You know, there's so much pressure. There's so much blah, blah, blah. I don't see it as that. To me, it looks like divine responsibility. Mm. To me, it looks like I'm supposed to be the person who has the capacity to carry other people's weight, to carry other people's responsibilities, to carry other people's expectations, emotional capacities. I'm supposed to be the guy who gets to do this. And it's not in contention with God, Zeus, but it is in cooperation with God, Zeus, that I get to have this divine responsibility bestowed upon me. And so that, to me, is what this piece means. It's probably my favorite. Bro, I love it, man, because, yeah, it's a, it's a matter of carrying other people and then letting them go. And Atlas is also a way to how to orient and navigate. And that's partly what we're meant to do here. Thanks so much mm-hmm. for providing roadmaps and guidance to men and people who have a realistic approach towards healthy masculinity and leadership. And thanks for being a guest on the podcast, Carrie. Thank you again, man. Always a good time. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. 
Act. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant over.